after missing a session last week on the Sermon on the Mount, but also last week celebrating families and children, and we just had a wonderful time. I was just so thankful for our time together as a church family last week, and those beautiful children and the wonderful families and all of us being together. And so we're going to get back to the Sermon on the Mount today. And then we have Easter and Holy Week coming up. And so we'll concentrate on that the next two Sundays. But then we will come back to the Sermon on the Mount because we still got a lot to do. Because in this, I want to remind you always that Jesus has preached this to us. I want to take it personally. <laughs> I want you to take it personally. Yes, it happened 2,000 years ago. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means that in his presence here in this place today, that he speaks these same words of wisdom, of teaching to you and me. And if we take it any, any less than that, then we are in error. Uh, because he is faithful, and we need to be faithful to take in what he teaches us. Now, I want to remind you that he said that if you practice, if you hear and practice these words that he teaches to us, then you will build your house on the rock, and it will always stand. Now, that's your personal house, that's your family's house, that's your church house, that is the house of your life and my life. And so we come as we celebrate these words, teach these words, seek to understand these words. The Sermon on the Mount is a very intense and deep experience. I want you to realize that if you haven't already thought about that. I want you to know that there are things in here in this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is effort, and I want you to hear this loud and clear, and I'm going to hear it as well, but Jesus is seeking to change you. <laughs> Jesus is seeking to change me. Jesus is seeking to make us new. Now, I want you to realize that because, and I've said to you, and you know, that you and I, as human beings, we struggle with the dual issue. We are definitely natural, sinful human beings. We were born that way. We still have that part of our spirit in us. So we are natural and sinful. Sorry to say, but you know that. However, in and through the presence of Jesus Christ... We are also spiritual beings, having his righteousness within us. And part of what scripture teaches us and part of what the whole message of the gospel is, part of what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount, is seeking to change me from that natural being that I am to that spiritual being that I'm supposed to be and that I want to be. Now, that is the same message for you and me. So as we go through these things today... They are intense. I will tell you that. They are significant. I will tell you that. And they are purposeful. 
I will tell you that. And so please realize that Jesus wants you and me to be new. Now, I remind you of a verse of scripture that I've mentioned to you before because it illustrates exactly what I'm saying because 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, verse 17 says, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are a new creation. The old order has passed away and everything has become new. Now, that's either true or we're going to dismiss and go to lunch. Now, I don't see anybody getting up and leaving to go to lunch. So I'm not, and you're not, and so I'm going to accept that we believe that in Jesus Christ we can be new creations. So that's what this is all about. Now, in this particular section that we're going to deal with at the Sermon on the Mount today, we go back to what we did two weeks ago where Jesus through Scripture said to you and me, Please do not think that I've come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill it. Now, remember, we talked about that. We talked about that Jesus was taking the concepts and the principles of Christian life to a deeper level, that the legalism, the law is on the surface, but Jesus is taking us deeper to a heart level and a spirit level. Uh, the legalism, the laws, the rules and regulations are more on an intellectual level, just a brain level. And that's not always bad, but it needs the foundation. And Jesus is actually saying in all of this that the law has not been complete and it needs to be fulfilled. And through his presence, and mostly through his love and grace and forgiveness, he has come to make it whole, to complete the law that has been a part of the Old Testament, a part of godly life. And yet now we have the whole package through Jesus Christ and his fulfillment. So today we're going to look at Jesus and what he is doing. He's taking six life issues. Now these life issues are very significant. We know of them. Some have suffered. All of us have suffered some of them. But in these life issues, I want to remind you and help you to think about and to notice that in everything there is a focus on being God's people to other people. There's a great deal of respect, of love, of grace, of forgiveness, of relationship in this that Jesus is asking for each of us to share with and to give to others in our lives. And that is representative in all six of these issues. And so they are applicable to you and me. And I am totally in favor of us showing the decent godly respect, the love, and the relationship to each other that Jesus is asking for. So, we're going to look at scripture in the fifth chapter of Matthew. I'm going to read and talk about it and share thoughts. 
And I just ask you to pray for me and for you that we will see precisely what Jesus Christ is doing here. You listen to him and you listen to his words. And I pray that my words will reflect that. It says in verse 21 of chapter 5 of Matthew. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago. Do not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you. Now there is the phrase folks. But I tell you. Who's speaking? Jesus Christ. And so he's taking what has been said in the past in all six of these areas, and he is adding, he's fulfilling, he is making them whole. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Reka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So therefore, do I say to you that anger is sinful. Now, have you been angry? Everybody just shake your head. <laughs> because everybody in here has been hurt. Right? You, somewhere in your life, you've been hurt, you've been betrayed, you've been misspoken of, you have been something that has hurt your feelings. Now, I will tell you, even from a psychological standpoint, and I have to do that sometimes because that's part of where I live. But when you get hurt, you get angry. It's inevitable. I tell people, although I don't do this, if I come over to you and kick you in the shin with these big boots, I remember I don't do that. But if I did that, you would hurt your leg would hurt first, and then your feelings would hurt. How dare this man of God, counselor, pastor, friend, kick me with his big old boot. And immediately after you hurt, you would be angry. It's inevitable. It is in me, and I believe it. Now, some people say anger is sinful. Well, I don't know about that because... The Bible says, be angry, but sin not. That's in the fourth chapter of Ephesians. So what does that say? Be angry, but sin not. This passage says, if you're angry and it leads to further stuff, reka, further stuff, you fool, further stuff, murder, certainly that is all anger that is festering. Anger that is boiling inside of you, which it does. Do you know that anger is a power? And it gets inside of you when you've been hurt or somebody's hurt you or you've gone through some difficult situation, particularly with other people. And that power becomes a cancer if you leave it there. And that is sin. Because then that cancer inside of you is hurting you. And that cancer inside of you is likely to come out and hurt somebody else at whom you're angry. Because you will avoid them. You will betray them. You will talk about them. You will lash out at them. You will say evil words to them. You will call them an idiot or a fool. 
And now we're talking about sin. But Jesus is saying, don't do that. Because he goes on to say that if there is something between you and a brother or a sister, then you need to resolve that. You need to go and settle that through loving, forgiving kind of conversation. That is the essence. Because anger, listen to me carefully, anger is relieved by one thing. Revenge? No, we'll talk about that later. No, anger is re relieved by one thing. Forgiveness. And that is the only thing. Now, sometimes forgiveness, you have to clean house. Which means that you have to talk about it. You have to pray about it. You have to come before your Heavenly Father with your anger. You have to go to the other person with your anger. You have to deal with it in a godly, legitimate, forgiving kind of way. And then there is no sin in that. And so anger, yes. And remember, these things that Jesus is talking about is for the others and for yourselves. He goes on to say, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, we know that adultery is wrong. It is destructive. And it is an act of sin. But lust goes deeper into the heart and into the mind. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about this. This is, this is difficult, and I will handle it very carefully. But lust is a disease. It's an epidemic in our lives. And lust is a selfish act. When somebody lusts for somebody else, there is a total sense of selfishness. And I've said to you before, and it is a fact, that selfishness is the origin of sin and certainly is the case in lust because you're thinking I'm thinking the person lusting is thinking all about themselves and their fantasies or their desires or their stimulation or their excitement and what is happening to the other person the person is the object of lust they're being and here's the word, objectified. Now, if you're not familiar with that word, please understand that now we're talking about a sin because lust takes another person, the person that is being lusted about, and objectifies them. That means that you're making that other person an object of your own selfish desires and fantasies. Now, is that right for that other person? No. That's why Jesus says that if a man, mostly, and I'm sorry I have to say this, mostly men struggle with this. Occasionally some women struggle with this. But if someone lusts for somebody else, that they are objectifying. They are already in their heart, in their mind, committing adultery with that person. Now, that's fairly easy to understand because 
That happens in random situations so much in our life. But I'm going to talk about one other thing that I've discovered in my counseling issues. I've done a lot of marriage counseling, 50 years. I don't know how many couples that I've dealt with. And I'm so thankful to be able to do it. But there's, there's so many issues between husbands and wives that I struggle with. But what I'm about to say is an unusual one. There can be, I believe this, and this is a part of this whole lust issue, there can be lust between a husband and wife. Now, it's wrong anywhere. But, oh, my goodness, for it to be in the very bounds of a wonderful marriage. And I have seen it too many times where there is lust, particularly men, listen to me carefully. There's lust, particularly from the husband to the wife. Now, is there supposed to be desire? Is there supposed to be affirmation? We're talking about a husband and wife here. Is there supposed to be pleasure and mutual respect and the sharing of love and the wonderful experience of sexuality that God has given to a husband and wife? Yes, 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 yes. But there is not supposed to be lust. Because remember what I said. It's a selfish act. It is not done in respect of the person at whom is being lusted after. Please understand that that has happened. It does happen. It breaks my heart because I know we know what God wants in a marriage between a husband and wife. And that is love and respect and appreciation and affirmation and all of that. Lust is a terrible violation of that. And so it is not to be a part of a marriage relationship. And I know, and that's part of why many people have come to me for counseling, because their ideas and concepts are misjudged. So lust, and Jesus is saying, and I'm saying, because he's saying that lust is destructive. And he goes on to say, sort of in the same vein, it has been said before, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become adulterous, and anyone who marries the divorced person commits adultery. Now, I treat this very, very sensitively and carefully because I would imagine that in a group of this size that some of you have been through a divorce. And I want to say at the very outset that God is here in forgiveness and in acceptance and in what you have gone through. I find it unfortunate that sometimes in our churches we have made divorce the major, 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 major sin. And yes, divorce is tragic. It is hurtful. It is an element of brokenness. 
and everybody that has been through it on either side of the coin has suffered the tragedy of it. And I ask you to realize that God is in the midst of forgiveness. And I'm going to tell you a quick story about a young, well, not a young man, an older man that I knew several years ago in another Baptist church. He had been through divorce. He had remarried. And he was now an absolute committed Christian, serving the Lord, going on mission trips, teaching Bible studies, being at church every time it was open, fine deacon in this church, but he still didn't feel accepted because he had been divorced. He had been broken in a divorce. And he came to me one day after a worship service. I was the pastor there. He came to me after the worship service. And he just with sadness said, I just don't feel like I belong. I think I've just got to stop the things that I do. And I said, why? He said, because I have been divorced. And I looked at him and I said, are you a committed Christian? He said, absolutely. I love the Lord. I love Jesus Christ. I know that he died for my sins. And I looked at him and I said, I called him by name, which I won't do that right now. But I looked at him and I put my arm around his shoulder. And I said, you are forgiven. Do you understand? I said to him that in this whole process, as hard as that has been, you are forgiven and God loves you. I am thrilled to tell you. And this was in 2011. I'm thrilled to tell you that that three or four minutes standing up at the front of the sanctuary after worship service changed this man's life. Now, I didn't. I just spoke the truth. And so divorce, yes, it is such a tragic, difficult thing. When I counsel people that are anticipating divorce, I say the first thing that we've got to do is to do everything that we can to honor the marriage and to see if there's any way whatsoever that forgiveness, reconciliation, repentance, uh, readjustment, uh, how can we work this out? And I tell them up front, that will be my intent. But I also have to accept, I hate to even say this, but sometimes divorce is inevitable. Sometimes it's already happened before they come see me or even before they come before the Lord. And so sometimes... And we read here that it's even permissible because Jesus says, except for marital unfaithfulness, sexual immorality. And so there is some reasons. And I believe that that even, I don't want any woman particularly to be, to, to be abused. I don't want anything of that nature. And if you ever suffer abuse, you get out of there. 
and then you come see me or you come to this church, you come to the deacons, you do what is necessary to protect yourself. But I want to honor the wonderful nature of marriage and I want to tell you that God will bless you and that if you're sitting here suffering in any way from that in your past life, there is forgiveness. Now, Jesus goes on. And he says here, again, you have heard it that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oaths, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. Now, that's a hard thing to understand. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about you and I being honest. He's talking about you and I being people of integrity. He's talking about us when we treat other people that we don't do anything that would mislead them or put guilt on them or would put pressure on them or would deceive them in any way. Your language is to be yes and yes and no and no, meaning that you don't have to prove anything else. You know, how many times do you say to somebody, well, if I was honest with you, and then you go on and say something, why do you even have to say that? Sometimes it just drives me crazy. I just say, don't. Do you have to say, if I were honest with you? I mean, sometimes close family or, or people in church, we're Christian people. Our integrity is supposed to stand as a certainty. Well, that's part of what Jesus is saying here. Let your integrity, let your honesty stand for what it is. You don't have to to prove anything or you don't have to now here's a word you don't have to manipulate please don't be a manipulator part of what is being represented here is sometimes we do things that would put pressure or manipulation on the other person we might say something like uh, well you know I need to ask you a favor but I know that you're really busy and, and I know that you've got a lot on you, but so do I. And I know that I really need this. And I re Stop. If you want to ask me a favor, just say, would you please do? Your words need to be yes and yes and no and no. And when they are that, you also give the other person the right to say yes or yes or no or no. You're not putting any pressure. You're not trying to prove your point or make your case. Now, I do believe in promises. Some people will read this and say, you're not supposed to make promise. No, I'm going to tell you, I love promises if they're kept. <laughs> I hate promises when they're not kept because then I think you're trying to prove something that is not to be. In fact, I know you're trying to prove something that's not to be. So, yes, I want you to promise that you will do this. And then you do that in honesty and integrity as a Christian man or woman. Then 
you are just saying yes, yes, or no, no. And so, yes, there's truth in this. And so Jesus is telling us to treat other people with respect here again. And then he goes on and says, You have heard it, that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, oh, listen carefully, and you know this verse, and nobody likes it. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And you would sit there and think, if I keep doing this, I'll just get slapped around. Well, remember who's saying this. Remember who's saying this, folks. It's not Pastor Don. Jesus said, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and, and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, what does that represent, folks? That represents the very character of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to go back and think about that. What has he done for you and me? He has certainly given us his cloak. He has certainly gone two miles or a hundred miles for us. He has certainly done what we ask him to do. I have asked him to forgive me. And he has gone to the cross. So what is he doing here? He is saying, you Christian people, you're to treat people the same way I treat people. If I go this distance for you, then you go this distance for them. This whole thing is about God's character. This whole business right here, this whole section of Scripture is about God's character. And then the last of the six that he talks about. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I want you to pay attention to this next phrase. Pray for those that persecute you. And in that way, you may be the sons of your father in heaven. If and when you love your enemies, you pray for them, even though they're persecuting you, you have a decent character, you have a decent spirit toward people who are in the, even in opposition to you, then you are being of the character of Jesus Christ. You will be the sons and the daughters of your God in heaven. Now, I want that to sink in for me and for you. Because that's a beautiful statement and a hard statement. How in the world do we do that? But we are to pray for those who persecute us. He causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not even like the tax collectors and they're doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? And then the last verse of this section. Oh, my goodness, people wrestle with this. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, what in the world does that mean? 
anybody in here can be perfect? I'm afraid not, folks. Can we strive? Can we commit ourselves to that? Can we seek completeness in and through the Spirit of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit within us? Yes, 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 yes. Remember, these are statements of the heart and the spirit, not totally of the behavior. Now, the behavior has got to go along with the heart and the spirit. So that, that doesn't excuse us at all. But is your heart and spirit seeking, and that's a key word, but seeking perfection by committing yourself to the character and to the, to the principles that Jesus Christ is talking about here? Remember, I told you when I started this sermon that Jesus is asking you and me to be new. That we're to be new creations in and through the spirit of Jesus Christ. And he has promised us. And he completely shows us. That you and I can be new. And so here is the, the essence of what Jesus is doing here. And these very hard, very difficult, but very meaningful statements in the Sermon on the Mount. Think again one last time, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Anyone who is in Christ Jesus, meaning Christ in them, them in Christ, tied to Romans 15, you must abide in me as I abide in you. But anyone that is in Christ Jesus is a new creation. The old order has passed away. And we have become new. I just pray that in my life and in your life, we will act like we're new. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us Jesus Christ, for sending your son so that he could completely immerse himself in us and ask us to immerse ourselves in him. And we hear loud and clear, Jesus, your teachings. Sometimes we struggle with them. Yes, we confess that we allow the humanness, the naturalness to kick us around. We're so sorry. Because you've given us freedom, joy, and forgiveness. And in that, we do declare through you that we are new. And we can continue to become new every day if we will seek you and follow you. I pray in me and in everybody in this room that we will hear your words. And know that you're empowering us to be new. And we thank you. And we pray in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.